You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I, I was a, astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence. That's basic law. It's been basic law in this country for 40 years, 50 years. We're used to seeing judges yelling in court, reprimanding, even berating. What we're not used to is judges crying in court, especially when telling the defendant the good news that he doesn't have to go to prison. But that's what happened when Brooklyn federal judge Pamela Chen sentenced Alejandro Berzacco, a banker turned sports marketing executive turned star witness at two FIFA corruption trials. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who was in the courtroom. Patty, tell us about Berzacco. He has been one of the most prolific and helpful witnesses the U.S. government has ever had. I've never covered a case where at the sentencing, the federal judge who presided over two trials and saw Berzacco on the stand for 14 days as a witness for the government, she actually cried and had to stop and dabbed the tears away as she told him how proud she was and privileged she was to see and hear his testimony. And then she continued, but as you were speaking, Mr. Brazaco, I felt some bit of privilege and pride about being able to participate in this role in this system, because this is a great justice system, and I think the finest in the world. And it does, I hope, always reward people for doing the right thing. It was extraordinary as a reporter with decades of experience. I've never seen that. I haven't either. It's stunning. What the government said he did is he helped them basically uncover the fraud and rampant bribery that was in international soccer, that there had always been these rumors, but no one had ever been willing to come forward, and that Berzaco had helped the U.S. government disclose the actual fraud that was involved in bribery. And after the trial has happened, there was one in 2017 that went on for weeks and weeks. And the second trial that just finished was like a 12-week trial earlier this year. She said that now the truth is out that it was bribery and soccer. People couldn't deny it any longer after all these witnesses testified. What was he accused of? Berzaco was accused and pled guilty to paying tens of millions of dollars in bribes in sports marketing executive. It's a very odd world, but basically, if you want to get uh, access to events and players and you want to broadcast those rights and endorse certain teams, these bribes were paid 
to the soccer bosses that were the heads of the different soccer entities. So basically, these soccer bosses were taking bribes from these corporations in exchange for extraordinarily lucrative broadcast rights. So the judge said that by cooperating, he put his life in danger? Yeah, and the first trial actually had all the trappings of a mafia case where witnesses, especially Berzacco, who were basically escorted to and from court under guard of FBI agents. The jurors were anonymous and their identities were not disclosed, which is what you see in a mafia trial, you know, a terrorism case. And he testified that because he was cooperating, he was terrified for his own safety as well as the safety of his family. His family was still living in Argentina and some of his children still lived there. So, in fact, his sentencing memo and the government's memo, everything is under seal and the court has refused to release it. The allegation was that he and his family had actually received death threats. So here's a guy that basically can never return home to Argentina. So he was on the stand a total of 14 days over two trials. What was he like on the stand? He has a phenomenal memory. And because this is a former businessman and banker, he knew about all the transactions and he could talk about the financing. But then he was, I thought, extraordinarily smart and down-to-earth guy that knew how to communicate to jurors. He remembered people's conversations. He remembered the nicknames of some of these soccer bosses. One of the guys in Argentina ran the empire from a gas station, and he was called in Spanish the Pope, and he wore a big signet ring, and people who used to come and pay tribute to him, and they would have to kiss his ring, just like you have to go when you see the Pope. (laughs) So you can see that there's all these anecdotes that Berzacco had at the tip of his fingertips, just off his memory. And he could recite whole parts of conversations. He remembered details about sitting in a restaurant and where they were sitting, 7th Avenue in Manhattan near the News Corp building, when former 21st Century Fox executives talked about paying bribes to get lucrative broadcast rights, including some of the allegations the government alleged was the rights to the 2022 World Cup. How many people were convicted because of his testimony? Dozens, more than two dozen were convicted. The soccer bosses were convicted, three at trial, two were acquitted, so five that went to trial. Dozens and dozens pled guilty. Sports marketing companies pled guilty. One of them is actually trying to get out, got convicted at the first trial. Some of the biggest guys in the sports were ousted also, like Sepp Blatter, who was the boss of FIFA. He was president for 17 years and was kicked out of the job. So prosecutors said that without Brazaco's help, that international soccer, that the true dirty underbelly would have never been exposed. Tell us who was in the courtroom for his sentencing. It was kind of wild because he not only had his lawyer, all of his family was there from Argentina, his children, I understand maybe two ex-wives and his fiance. And then, you know, as reporters who cover courts, you always hear these people that suddenly do good deeds just ahead of their sentencing where, you know, they're working in a soup kitchen or working (laughs) with a homeless or something like that, right? Right. Well, Brazaco actually had some of the co-workers from the food pantry he works with, and there was a soup kitchen he works with where he's so vigilant about working with them. 
from the description of his lawyer, Jim Walden, it sounded like he had felt so responsible after turning rogue as the former Citigroup banker, you know, turned bagman, paying money, millions of dollars in bribes. He decided to turn over a new leaf and cooperate with the government. But it didn't just end there with helping and testifying as a government witness. Here he is doing this good work for years and years and years. So it's been eight years since that raid at the five-star hotel in Switzerland when all the FIFA bosses got arrested, right? He somehow was in the dining room, but they didn't get him for some reason. I don't know why. But he walked out the back door and immediately went to the Swiss Italian border and called his lawyers and immediately came in and offered to help and then secretly pled guilty and has been on Team America, right, helping the government. But here he is for eight years. He's also been working in these soup kitchens and food pantries. And he wanted to make amends in such a way that when he saw a, another guy at the soup kitchen getting attacked and somebody was stealing his motorbike or his bicycle, Brazaco stepped in to stop the crime and stopped to protect the man that was getting hit by chains and called the cops. And then when the DA found out who the witness was, she had to tell the Manhattan DA's office who exactly they wanted to call as a witness that they couldn't use him because it would interfere with their criminal case. So Brazaco found another witness and convinced that guy to come forward and testify against the wrongdoer. So his lawyer called him the Superman of cooperators, and it really did make him sound like Superman of all these good deeds that he'd done that weren't just idle, you know, let's do it for a weekend on Thanksgiving and let's get done with our public service. This is a guy who's been committed for the last eight years to helping people. Patty, besides family members and co-workers at the food kitchens he's worked at, who else was at the sentencing? That was the other extraordinary thing, to see rows and rows of former prosecutors who've been on the case for eight years and left the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they're sitting there, and FBI agents I haven't clapped eyes on in years, and they're sitting there, and all of them had worked in the case, and they all came and showed support to him. And everyone said to me afterwards, you know, that you don't often see a federal judge crying, and there she was crying about how proud she was to have seen his testimony. And she noted that some of the defense lawyers had assailed his credibility and called into question his motives. He was assailed as a liar who was fingering these other upstanding members of the community in the soccer world just to get even or to hide his crimes. But, you know, the judge said she had not seen evidence of that. And these guys, I mean, it was just, I've never seen anything like it. It was quite the spectacle. So tell us about what he said at the sentencing. It was very emotional. You can tell, you know, that this whole aspect of leaving one's country and his family behind and trying to do the right thing and make up for his crime weighs really heavily on him. He seems a man who's very tortured and affected by the remorse he feels, it was definitely palpable. He has to pause. He reddened in the face at some points in time. I mean, he got very emotional, and his voice choked up with emotion trying to talk about how horrified and remorseful he was about the crimes he committed. And, you know, he had to live alone in the U.S. and facing the prospect and then imagine that you're on hold. You have everything put on hold 
well, you wait for these two trials to go through the system. And so the first one started in uh, May 2015. The first trial started in November 2017. So we're talking two years later. And the second trial didn't happen until 2023 because of the pandemic. So imagine having your life and being put on ice like that, and then you're having to stand by. He thanked everybody. You know, he says, I want to say to all the victims, I fully accept to take responsibility for the crimes I've committed. I understood it was bad and no one forced me to do it. And I know my conduct was wrong. It was very wrong. He apologized to the soccer world, to the members of the soccer clubs in South America, who he called the real shareholders of these clubs, and these people who love the sport, who were basically betrayed by this fraud. Talked about how, what was his motivation? Why did he engage in this fraud? My conclusion is that at the beginning of my career in the soccer industry, I was motivated by a desire to be close to the people in the industry. And he basically wanted to get in where all the decisions were made in big soccer. And of course, what happens is, when he, he joined this company, Torneos de Competencias, the soccer management company, the people were paying bribes. And it was sort of like the way you had to do business to succeed. So he saw firsthand what was going on, and then he knowingly went along with it. So, you know, he said, I was motivated by greed, and I deeply regret my actions. And I was selfish, and I am ashamed of it, and I'm still ashamed of it. And I want to tell the victims I've dedicated my last eight years to repair this. It just was extraordinary. You don't, most of the time, I call it the great American apology. Mistakes were made. Things happen. But I don't have anything to do with it, because that's the way some people act after getting caught and pleading guilty. You know, they minimize their role. He was definitely not that kind of guy. It sounds like it was an extraordinary sentencing. Thanks so much, Patty. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Supreme Court upheld California's new humane pork law, rejecting an industry challenge in a ruling buttressing the power of states 
to impose rules that have a broad economic impact on other parts of the country. The ruling could force pork producers to implement costly changes to keep selling in the world's most populous state. The industry argued unsuccessfully that California is violating the Constitution by regulating commerce outside its borders. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote for the five-justice majority, saying the pork industry would have us cast aside caution for boldness by intervening where Congress had declined to act. The ruling cut across the court's left-right divide. Justices Clarence Thomas, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Amy Coney Barrett joined Gorsuch in voting to toss out the lawsuit, although the majority splintered in some of its reasoning. Four justices, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, said they would have kicked the case back to a federal appeals court for more scrutiny. My guest is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. First of all, tell us about California Proposition 12, which is one of the nation's strongest farm animal welfare laws. California passed Proposition 12 to ensure sort of humane conditions for pigs. And and the problem was that pigs are usually put in, in pens very close to other pigs. There can be violence. Pigs don't get exercise. And so in terms of cruelty, many people think that those kinds of conditions should be banned. And California's not alone. There are laws against cruelty in terms of raising food in Massachusetts and Florida and other states. But this one is noteworthy because California is such a large market. And so when it decides that pigs have to be housed in humane conditions, that's going to cause a huge ripple effect into the pork industry as a whole. The argument in this case is about this arcane constitutional doctrine called the Dormant Commerce Clause. Explain what that is. So we have a Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which gives Congress the ability to regulate commerce amongst the states. And that's not at stake here, and that's not controversial. But the Supreme Court later in its history decided to read a negative implication into that clause, suggesting that some kinds of state regulatory actions, even if they're based upon public policy, can have the impact of interfering with interstate commerce. And so the court on its own will sort of judge whether a state regulatory effort is discriminatory against out-of-state commerce and therefore violates the spirit of the Constitution by picking and choosing which kind of producers to value from which states there should be accepted commerce in the states. And what was the argument here by the pork industry? The pork industry had two or three different arguments depending upon how one counts. The first might be called an extraterritorial principle, that any kind of state regulation that has the impact that is felt mostly externally should, as a per se matter, be found to be unconstitutional. A variant of that is the fact that in this case, it wasn't just a state regulation, it was a moral regulation. And both the Mikai as well as the pork industry said, look, if you allow California to impose a kind of moral principle in terms of humane treatment for pigs, what's to stop California from then saying as a moral issue, we only want to deal with employers who are fair to their employees, or we only want to have products from employers that are fair to employees. And we only want to deal with products in companies which abide by 
the privacy rights of their female employees. So the fear was that this kind of case opened up the Pandora's box and giving sort of a green light to states to impose all sorts of regulations that have really to do with the morals of the state as opposed to any kind of legitimate protection for their citizens, such as from poison or pollution or something along those lines. So that was one argument, and it's probably that's why this case got so much attention, because of this extraterritoriality aspect of it. The second one was just a, a plain balancing test. And in prior cases, the court had held that when the burdens of a state regulation are excessive in comparison to the in-state benefits, that that state rule also violates the Dormant Commerce Clause of which we've been speaking. With the second argument, there are some members of the court that want to get rid of it. And this balancing test was severely limited by the court. It wasn't by a majority of the court, but three members of the court suggested that they'd get rid of this balancing test in a proper case, and other members of the court, enough to get a majority, said that the pork producers had not demonstrated such a huge excessive burden in this case. So that coalition, which led on the second point, this balancing, uh, which is called the Pike Test, led to the court ruling against the pork industry on that one as well. This was a weird lineup that cut across ideological divides and resulted in five separate opinions. So what was the strand in the majority? Well, the strand in the majority held that you cannot parse a state regulation and say that it's having to do mostly with morals as opposed to protection for the citizens of the state. So that distinction that was forwarded by the pork producers was clearly rejected by a majority of the court, which is the controversial aspect of the decision, because then it does you know, open up other states to enact morals legislation, which has an impact upon out-of-state commerce. Because again, on the face, this Regulation Proposition 12 is neutral because it would apply to pork producers in California as well as pork producers outside. It's just that there are almost zero pork producers in California. So obviously this had a a great out-of-state impact. So at least on the first question, it's whether if you have this kind of huge impact, is that a per se violation of the negative commerce clause? The court clearly came down no. On the second issue, it had to do with this balancing of in-state benefits versus out-of-state burdens. And that's where the court was fractured. On that case, three of the justices said we'd get rid of this balancing test. It's inappropriate for courts. How can you, you know, balance benefits and costs? And then two members of the court said, well, we need to keep the test, but it's a narrow test. And the pork industry did not demonstrate the excessive burden in this case. And to dissenting justices, they would have at least held that the producers did make a facial claim as to a substantial burden, and that should be remanded back to the court to make that kind of balancing test, though they agreed that the test of (laughs) balancing burdens and benefits was difficult, but they said it wasn't impossible, and that's what the lower court should undertake. Do you have any inkling as to why this opinion was so fractured and cut across ideological lines? Well, I think in terms of ideology, what's interesting is you have the kind of 
liberals who you might think would be in support of California and this kind of moral legislation. But then again, you have the traditional state writers who believe that the Dormant Commerce Clause should be very limited if it exists at all, and therefore because now would give more power to the states as well. So you have two different types of movements which would suggest that the states should get more power than they have in prior Commerce Clause challenges. And of course, there's the lineup on the other side <laughs> cuts across ideological lines as well with Justice Jackson agreeing with Chief Justice Roberts saying that we ought to keep the balancing test. That's the proper way to understand limits on state authorities. And if the state action does have a disproportionate impact outside the state, then that measure is, runs afoul of Dormant Commerce Clause. And so, again, you had both Chief Justice Roberts as well as Justice Alito and Justice Jackson all on the same side. You don't often have the Supreme Court making decisions in the animal welfare area. Is this a victory for the animal welfare movement in you know more ways than one? Oh, it's absolutely a victory for animal welfare, sanctioning any kind of state efforts to try to ensure that animals are housed or slaughtered in a humane uh, manner. You know, there are states that ban the sale of horse meat, and obviously states, if they want to take other kinds of measures to protect animals, they can do so. And maybe that's true for fish farming, too, but who knows? Do you buy the pork producers saying that this is going to increase prices for consumers and drive small farms out of business and increase consolidation in the industry? Because California is such a large market, its impact will be felt in the industry. And I do think that Proposition 12 will give rise to um, higher prices because you know once you have to spend more money in terms of housing pigs and ensuring exercise and, and so forth, that is going to raise costs on doing business. So how big of an effect is unknown, but it is logical economically to think that this is going to drive pork prices up. Also, Justice Kavanaugh referred to the slippery slope argument in his opinion, and there were some concerns that the reasoning here, you know, the core issue, the ability of states to take actions with impacts beyond their borders could also be used by states in their efforts to restrict or expand abortion access. I'm skeptical that there'll be a direct impact here on the question about what states can do in terms of either ensuring the delivery of the abortion pill or precluding it. That has to do with the privileges and immunities clause and how that's developed in terms of the rights between those in one state and another state. I think the commerce issue here is distinct enough that there won't be any spillover into the more contentious issue of what kind of impact can one state have on citizens of another state or prevent their own citizens from availing themselves of the options available, whether it be marijuana or abortion services in a different state. So I, I'm skeptical then there will be any kind of carryover effect. So how much does this buttress the power of states to impose rules that have an impact, an economic impact on other parts of the country? It's a huge win for states. States can take the signal in the poor producer's case and decide on a whole variety of local welfare type of regulation, which has the practical impact of imposing more costs on 
out-of-state producers. They can't discriminate. They have to treat in-state producers the same as out-of-state producers. But with that bare sort of minimum, it gives the states rights to do that. Now, that always is subject to preemption by Congress. Congress, under the commerce power, can say that those kinds of restrictions are not conducive to free flow of commerce from place to place, but subject to preemption. The states can make those decisions and impose costs as long as they don't do so in a discriminatory manner. It was interesting because the reason why this was controversial is because of the sort of moral extraterritoriality effect of California's law, and yet all the members of the court refused to strike it down on that ground, seemingly inviting the kind of retaliation or tit-for-tat that may well arise as states begin to regulate more in the social area, whether it be in ESG-type stuff or in other kinds of contexts. Does any other red state have the economic power that California does? No, that's the underlying thing, is that this gives big states the advantage, particularly when it's talking about environmental pollution or other kinds of activities. California can make a difference just because of its size. Rhode Island and Arkansas aren't going to have that kind of national prominence. Well, we'll see if other states make any moves. Thanks so much, Al. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.